My name is John Stein, um, brother of the more famous Rick Stein, and um, I've been a medical tutor at uh, Magdalen for almost 40 years. Uh, my main job, I always thought, was teaching medical students, um, but I also did a lot of research, and it has culminated in a, a very passionate interest in children's reading problems. It arises out of the fact that I've been always very interested in trying to widen access from, uh, to Oxford from all sorts and conditions of people. Um, as you probably know, we always run into trouble for taking too many people from um, private schools, and one of the things I've always been interested in is trying to see what prevents able people getting to Oxford. Well, that quest took me to an interest in very early in life the problems with children's reading. So that's what I'm going to talk about. I should give you a health warning right from the beginning, and that is that um, what I'm going to say, much of what I'm going to say, is highly controversial. And um, I'm not going to have time to give you all the scientific evidence for what I'm going to say, but if anybody's interested, I can provide them with oodles of evidence. So, um, let's see if this works. Yes. I'm going to be talking about dyslexia, and I want you to realise quite how devastating it is. I'm in the slow readers group, my brother is in the football team, my sister is a server, my little brother was a wise man in the Christmas play. I'm in the slow readers group. That's all I'm in. I hate it. That was a little poem that one of our children wrote, and it just smote me. <laughs> I hope it does you too. But there are a lot of people who say that this condition, dyslexia, doesn't really exist. It's just a middle-class excuse for their children's stupidity. And you hear this again and again. Here's a guy um, who I have great respect for, by the way, so I don't, I, in lots of ways I agree with some of the things he's saying. But Julian Ennett say, basically ascribes the idea that middle-class children are called dyslexic, where working-class children are called thick. Um, he says, whatever the cause, children whose reading is poor have the same brain difficulties in processing the sounds of language, whether they have a high or low IQ. Therefore, dyslexia doesn't exist. Now, that's an absolute non sequitur. It ignores the strong genetic and neurological evidence that I'm going to talk about, that dyslexia is a separate syndrome from general backwardness, which is what a lot of children suffer from uh, who can't read. What is developmental dyslexia? It's reading and spelling significantly below that expected from a child's age and general intelligence, despite good health, adequate teaching and supportive family background. Um, and the point about it is it's genetically based, it is a neurological syndrome. It doesn't just involve reading. The other children that are sometimes called garden variety poor readers, uh, who fail to learn to read, simply because of very low intelligence, lack of home or teaching support and things like that. But I'm going to be talking about a real neurological syndrome called developmental dyslexia. And my main reason for thinking that it is a neurobiological base, has a neurological basis, is that it is highly genetic, highly hereditary. Uh, the heritability of dyslexia is 50%. What that means is that 50% of the differences in children's reading abilities depend upon the genes they inherit. Of course, that means the other 50% depends upon things like teaching and so on, but we'll be talking about that later. But the fact that it is highly heritable means that it must have a biological basis and not be simply cultural or middle-class um, uh, excuses. I'm going to talk to you in detail about a particular gene that we've discovered called KIO319, but there, you see here there are at least actually seven genes that have been associated with dyslexia. The point I want to make now is that it is a highly genetically conditioned. We know that three of those genes actually have an effect on the um, setup of the brain. So these are what are called ectopias. Uh, they're where 
during the development of the brain in the mother's womb, the neurons, instead of obeying the rules and stopping here, they make these little excrescences, sometimes called brain warts, but they're only about one millimetre in size. Nowadays, you can just about pick them up with MRI imaging, but this shows a brain post-mortem of a known dyslexic in the Orton Brain Bank, and you can see that there are lots of these uh, uh, ectopias, particularly in the left hemisphere, particularly in the parts of the left hemisphere, which are important for language. Now, we all have a few ectopias, but not as many as this. Those, uh, that, that difference in the setup of the brain causes the uh, differences in the functioning of the brain. So here what you have is a, what's called a functional magnetic resonance image showing the differences in the amount of activity of the parts of the brain that I showed you earlier, which are important for language in the left hemisphere, um, the differences in the activation of those areas in good readers versus dyslexics. This shows the areas that are less active in dyslexics than in good readers. And you can easily see that they are, in fact, the same areas that those ectopias I showed you were earlier in. So dyslexia has a real neurobiological basis, not just poor teaching, etc. And the, there are three main reasons that I'm going to talk a bit about. Gen the genetic basis, uh, uh, and that's shown by the frequent family history. Almost every person we see in our clinics has a family history of reading differences. It's commoner in boys, and it's associated with autoimmunity, which I'll come back to. All those things suggest a genetic basis, as we'll see. Then that leads to the anatomical differences, some of which I've talked about, the cortical ectopias that you saw in the previous slide. Um, but there are other things that I haven't got time to go into, um, which show that the genes lead to a change in the way in which the brain is set up, very early in development. And then these lead to physiological differences, differences in function. So children with reading problems, dyslexic reading problems, have unstable visual and auditory attention. That is to say they cannot sequence things quite as well as people who are good readers. Um, that leads to poor eye control and poor pronunciation, which in turn leads to the, many of the things on the other side of this uh, list. I'm not going to have time to talk about all of them, but I want to talk particularly about the overlap with other neurodevelopmental dis, um, uh, disorders, and I'm going to talk about, at the end about nutrition. Um, now, I sometimes think dyslexia is at the one end of a spectrum of conditions, with the, the most uh, severe end of which is autism, because they all overlap. Uh, we showed some time ago, or rather, um, uh, Alex Richardson, in my then in my lab, showed that the many dyslexics have some sort, uh, some sorts of autistic uh, kinds of symptoms. That's by no means saying all dyslexics are autistic. What it says is they share some common features, and we now know they share some common genes. Um, of course, English is a very difficult language to uh, read, and I love this. Though uh, the rough, tough cough and hiccup plough me through, or life's dark loch, my course I still pursue. Those are all different pronunciations of the O-U-G-H. And you know that English is actually one of the worst languages. I gather that Danish is even worse. I only discovered that yesterday. Um, but reading is difficult anyway, even without the, um, uh, the, uh, the um, lack of transparency of English uh, script, uh, because it requires three things going on more or less simultaneously. It requires va rapid visual identification of letters and their order, and actually that turns out to be rate limiting even in good, the best readers. It needs rapid auditory translation of those letters into the sounds they stand for, and it needs a background knowledge of what's called phonology. That's how words can be split down into separate sounds. Now, what I'm going to be telling you, or trying to persuade you of, is that all these processes depend on a particular kind of nerve cell in the brain called a magnocell. I've been studying magnocells 
throughout my research time, so um, I'm particularly keen on them, as you'll see. Um, but what it means is that reading, uh, the, the difficulty of reading means that uh, a lot of people fail, and not all of them through dyslexia, by any manner of means. But what you can see here is that um, there's a, a very large percentage of boys who are poor readers and uh, less so of girls, but it's not insignificant. And in fact, in prisons, 75% of uh, prisoners are illiterate. Um, and reading failure is the commonest cause of childhood misery and uh, depression. And the, I'm afraid to say we've even known of some suicides among small children, well, relatively small children. It's the commonest disability among college students, and even Oxford has quite a number of uh, dyslexics. But what I'm going to show you is the dyslexia actually carries with it some advantages as well, so we shouldn't exclude them from a place like Oxford. The other side, as I said, is that through frustration and anger with the world, dyslexics turn to aggression and crime. As I say, not all those people who um, fail to learn to read at school could be considered dyslexic, but a large proportion can. So how is it manifest in the classroom. As I said, it's backward reading and spelling in an otherwise bright child, reading very far behind what is expected for that particular intelligence. It's very common, as I say, 15% of all boys, 7% of girls. In secondary pupils, you find that it causes great anxiety. The children are very slow at reading out loud and they have particularly poor spelling. In adults, poor spelling is the giveaway for usually compensated dyslexics. And then, as I say, close relative normally had the same kinds of problems, and it's associated with this confusion of visual order of letters and of the order of sounds, uh, which leads to poor orthography, which is the visual side of reading, and to poor phonology, the understanding of the sound structure of words. But it generalizes to other things, poor sequences in general, letters of the alphabet, days of the week, months of the year, and it leads to an, uh, a poor ability to sequence your own life, and therefore children are often very disorganized. As I say, that sequencing problem leads to a real problem with learning multiplication tables. Often it's associated with confusing left and right, and often it's associated with incoordination, as I'll come back to. Now, the first point I want to make is that visual, uh, that reading is primarily a visual, a visual processing problem. Um, we think of there being two kinds of uh, ways in which you read. When you're learning to read, you um, uh, have to see the letters, identify the letters in their order, and then translate each letter into its sound. So D spells D, O spells O, etc. And that's called the sublexical route for reading. But the other route for somebody who knows the word dog or knows a, a lot of words in their visual lexicon, they see the whole word. They don't have to look at the individual letters and they know immediately what it means. So this is a much faster route, but this is the one that you use when you're learning to read and for all words that you are not familiar with. Um, now, I'm going to emphasize the visual side first, because many children with reading problems complain of difficulty of, uh, of, of keeping their eyes stationary, and so the letters tend to wobble uh, as, as um, uh, Winnie the Pooh said. And it's because they have what's called weak visual magnocellular function. We've done a recent survey of uh, nearly 1,400 unselected 8 to 10 year old children in primary school, and we find that 5% of them complain of visual problems that impede their reading. And that's roughly half the number that you'd expect to be dyslexic. And it's time and time again, we find that about half of dyslexics have a particular problem with visual uh, sequencing. That isn't to say that all children with dyslexia have a visual problem, but many do. Now, what I'm going to now tell you, I'm going to have to delve a bit into uh, some anatomy and physiology of the brain. In your retina, which is the part of the uh, eye that converts light into electrical signals that 
communicate with the part of your brain where vision is first analyzed, that is in the occipital lobe, the back of the brain, 10% um, of these retinal ganglion cells, these things that are producing the electrical signals, are these very large ones called uh, magno cells, magno being Latin for large. And you'll see that their processes, the so-called dendrites of this cell, are extremely uh, widely uh, uh, ramifying compared with the parva cells, which are much smaller. And in fact, they have a hundred times the area of the parvo cells. This means they're good at picking up when things happen, uh, but they're bad at picking up fine detail. So the magno cells are for timing visual events, the parvo cells are for things like fine detail and colour. Now this system, the visual magno system, is only 10% of the retinal ganglion cells. It, they travel via a private um, set of uh, laminae uh, layers in a part of the brain called the lateral geniculate nucleus and then they arrive in the, this primary visual cortex and they dominate all the parts of the brain shown here uh, that control the eye movements and visual attention. And the reason they're so important is they manage, they're important for stabilizing your vision. So each time you probably know that your eyes are never perfectly stationary, they can't be, nothing is perfect in biology and actually the eyes have to move a bit uh, because they have, uh, that's necessary to avoid the, the, um, the image fading altogether. But any unwanted image motion is picked up by these ganglion cells and detected by this magnocellular system and that in turn is fed back to the eye muscle control system that brings the eyes back on target in a servo system. That enables you to achieve visual perceptual stability, which in turn enables you to identify letter, letter order, because if you know where your eyes are pointing when you see each letter, you know which order you're seeing the letters in. Uh, and that in turn gives you orthographic skills, the visual skills of leading, and it turns out that that's an important uh, input to gaining the phonological skill. You only learn um, about the makeup, the sound makeup of words, when you know that those words can be represented in visual letters. Once you know that the word dog is spelt D-O-G, you can then easily say to yourself, ah, it, it consists of the three sounds, D, O, G. But before you learn that it can be represented by three letters, you don't make the distinction between the three, what we think of now as three parts of that word. You just say the word dog as a complete whole. Now what I'm going to persuade you of is that the visual magnocellular system is mildly impaired in many dyslexics as a result of this genetic, um, I'm not going to call it defect because actually I think it's an advantage quite often. I'm not going to have go through any of this evidence, but if anybody's interested, I can uh, give you more information. But what I want to show you is one particularly compelling piece of evidence, unfortunately not mine, but by Al Galaberda in, uh, in um, uh, Harvard University. This is a normal 70-year-old come to post-mortem. And what you see is those magnocellular layers of the LGN um, are separate from the parvocellular layers. But this is that brain that I showed you earlier with the ectopias, and you'll see two things. First of all, the, the um, cells in these magnocellular layers don't look quite as healthy as the others. They look a bit moth-eaten. See these all round, these are a bit sort of angular. And that, to a trained eye, says that these uh, children are a bit, um, uh, uh, sorry, these, <laughs> these uh, cells, they're not children. Uh, these cells are, um, uh, are, are, have been uh, attacked in some way. They're actually 30% smaller uh, if you actually do the, uh, uh, the measurement of their area. But the other thing you notice is that they're spilling over into these areas here. So they're, again, they're failing to take up the correct positions in the brain during development. Um, now, a particular problem with um, if, if you don't have 
this good control of the um, eyes, which a failure of the magnocellular development gives you, is that you have a failure of good, fine control of what's called virgins. When you're reading, your eyes have to be pointed in an arrowhead, and uh, so uh, you can see, let's say, the um, letter uh, D. But if your eyes are wobbling all the time, then at one moment your, your left eye might be seeing the D, and the next moment it might be seeing the G. So what will happen is the letters will appear to move over each other, and that's exactly what many children complain of. They complain the letters go blurry, they move over each other, float all over the page. These are all signs of lack of perceptual stability. Uh, this is a, a rather more um, uh, literary um, uh, ex, uh, description of the same thing from one of our, our, our children. So we have a lot of uh, examples of the impaired visuomotor function due to impaired magnocellular development in dyslexics. Again, I'm not going to go through all of these, but there's a huge amount of evidence now that the magnocellular deficit leads to impaired visuomotor function. What this means is that instead of seeing uh, the tower of my college, Magdalen College, in crisp uh, and beautiful uh, symmetry, you see something like this. These children could see something like this. I'm not saying it's as bad as this, but I'm making the point that if your eyes move, you don't see things clearly. And it also gave me the opportunity to show you Magdalen Tower. Um, now, what we find is that we can use some simple interventions that will actually improve visual motor, visual magnocellular function. Uh, and that improves visual attention and eye control. And what I'm going to talk, talk to you about in particular is looking through coloured filters. Again, very controversial, but shortly we'll be publishing a paper which I hope will convince everybody. Um, this is the uh, yellow filters we use. Um, the reason they work is that they favour the inputs to the magnocellular system. Now, I must make it clear, the magnocellular system doesn't support uh, conscious colour vision. Nevertheless, the magnocells receive mainly from the red and green cones. And the best way of uh, stimulating red and green cones is by using a yellow, of an orangey-yellow colour. So the yellow filters that we use actually give the magnocellular system a bit of a boost. And that is quite often enough to improve children's reading. So you see here that the yellow filters cut out almost all the blue, but let particularly the red and most of the green through as, uh, uh, in addition. Uh, this shows the effect in one child uh, in which the, uh, what, uh, what you could see is that the, his writing was appalling beforehand. This just one week after wearing yellow glasses, it was miraculously improved. And in fact, when we did a randomised controlled trial in which we compared blue, uh, yellow filters with a, uh, what's called a placebo, which uh, we didn't expect to work, but the children thought might, um, we uh, found that we could improve the reading uh, of these children by seven and a half months, in three months, after three months of wearing the filters, and a similar effect on spelling. But there's another set of children who benefit from blue filters. And this, of course, would be the opposite, because blue would cut out the um, red and green and therefore disfavour the magna system. But we think this works in a different way. Uh, these, these filters cut out uh, not all of the uh, yellow and green, but they very much favour blue. Um, and the reason we think they work, oh, first of all, let me show you that they do work. This is a, uh, the, what a, a parent said, stopped his eyes moving around so that everything looked a lot clearer. Um, and when we did the same kind of a randomised controlled trial in which we gave half the children the blue filters and half uh, the placebo, you see we saw that the reading in this case in three months improved for the blue filters by almost 14 months in just three months. Uh, whereas the 
uh, placebo, they actually went backwards because they ought to have, uh, a normal child as it were, increases his reading by three months in three months, and this, in this case it was only one month. Spelling is always a little behind reading for obvious reasons. Um, the reason we think these work is because we've, uh, in this university, in fact, Russell Foster is one of the people who did this, uh, there's been a discovery of a new set of uh, uh, what are called melanopsin-containing retinal ganglion cells. As you may remember I talked about the ganglion cells in the retina that translate light into electrical impulses. Well, there's a set that are particularly responsive to blue light that feed not to your conscious vision, but to a part of your brain called the hypothalamus, and in particular the suprachiasmatic nucleus. Suprachiasmatic nucleus is where your internal body clock is. And you probably know that you have a bodily rhythms which um, uh, peak at midday and trough at midnight, roughly speaking. And those daily rhythms, diurnal rhythms, have to be kept in time with prevailing day length. So what this blue light does is synchronise the clock to the prevailing day length. So you get up earlier in the summer or you, uh, and, uh, later in the winter. Uh, in principle, or that you, you, your system wakes up earlier in the summer. Um, and what we now know is that that system, by a complicated route that I won't bother you with, the way in which it wakes you up, first and foremost, is by activating your magnocellular system, because that's very important for uh, ar your arousal. So um, the blue light, we believe, is working by activating your arousal system and so it's very good for, um, uh, for these children. And um, what we know is that many of the children who benefit from blue light actually have problems with sleeping. They have, um, uh, they have uh, poor sleeping uh, patterns. Whereas when they, take, uh, when they use the blue spectacles, particularly if they use them in the morning and early afternoon, but not at night, not in the evening, then that improves their sleep rhythms. We know that this is the way it's working because the night hormone, which is, um, which is uh, melatonin, which peaks its, uh, its uh, production at around two or three in the morning, if you wake up undergraduates at two or three in the morning and put our blue glasses on them just for 15 minutes, you actually reduce the secretion of melatonin, the night hormone, by 15%, which is proving that the way in which these are working is by reducing, uh, 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 by activating this uh, system I was talking about. Another serendipitous discovery was that this actually helps many children with migraine. A lot of the children who benefit from blue spectacles have a problem with headaches, not only when they read, but also with migraineous headaches. And what we found was that we, the blue, light, uh, blue spectacles got rid of their headaches altogether, whereas the yellow sometimes made them worse. And this is Damien Hirst, famous artist who wears blue filters and is also said to be dyslexic, although he won't admit it apparently. Um, so this summarizes a lot of what I've said and something I'm going to say. Uh, normal reading in three months, uh, your, your, um, your reading is meant to go up by three months, so I've put, said that zero. But for all these things, yellow, and this is uh, something I'm not going to have time to talk about all that, but for blue and also for omega-3s, you get an increase in reading age which is much greater than you expect by, uh, of a normal child. And so, in fact, in, particularly in the case of the blue and the omega-3s that I'll come to right at the end, um, these children catch up with their peers within a year, very often. So just to uh, draw a close this particular one and show you my favourite joke about dyslexia, um, they misorder letters and misread GNU for gun. Um, now I want to briefly talk about the auditory pathway. You remember I said that there's this pathway where you have to see the letters and translate them into their sounds, D to for doll, etc. Now that uh, is the background to um, 
obtaining phonological abilities. Um, but what I'm going to show you is, uh, is that many dyslexics have a problem with their auditory magnus cells, and the auditory magnus cells are doing a similar job in the auditory system to what the visual magnus cells are doing in the visual system. And this leads, so that I'm going to show you that they have difficulty hearing warbles, that's where the warbles in my uh, title come from, uh, and this leads to their difficulties hearing letter sounds properly, and therefore their um, phonological problems. Now when I say b, uh, or duh, what you're hearing, even though it sounds totally different, you're picking up on just a change in frequency here, what's called the second formant, that's generated by my pharynx. Um, so for buh, that particular set of frequencies goes up in the first 50 milliseconds or so, and for duh, it comes down. And that's the only difference between those two sounds, and yet you hear it very clearly. Children don't hear it so clearly, um, but they learn very quickly when they learn to speak to tell the difference between b and d or g or whatever. So what is important is picking up changes in frequency and actually changes in intensity of sound. And this is what these magna cells are specialised to do. So we simply tested children's ability to um, pick up warbles. So I hope this will help work, but maybe it won't, in which case I'll have to do it myself. Did. Did you hear that? Went, uh, that is a change in frequency, uh, twice a second of this what's called carrier pure tone. Oh, I'm sorry about the distortions, but you can hear one's a pure tone, the other's going up and down in frequency. And that's what I'm calling a warble, and here's another one. This is um, a faster warble. Again, you're hearing the difference in frequency. Um, now what we showed was that children with reading problems, dyslexics, actually had more difficulty in hearing that warble. So for the two hertz tone, they need more frequency change to hear it than do good readers. Similarly for the 40 hertz tone. This is different altogether. Let me just play it to you. This is what's called a, uh, a come on, where are you? Oh, there we are. Um, see that, you can't hear that changing in frequency or changing in amplitude. What you hear is what's called the spectrum. You hear a chord um, for that particular kind of sound and that's not carried by this auditory magnocellular system. It's processed by the equivalent of auditory small cells, parvo cells. So what I'm showing here is that there is a, a difference in dyslexia of hearing relatively simple sounds which can explain their problems with um, phonology. So the large magnocellular neurons in the auditory brainstem signal change in sound frequency and amplitude Dyslexics, I haven't got time to show this, have smaller magnocellular neurons in the part of the brain of the thalamus, as it's called, that is relaying auditory information to the cerebral cortex just here. They have lower auditory amplitude and frequency modulation sensitivity, sensitivity to changes in frequency and amplitude. And as I'm saying, dyslexics' poor phonology may result at least partly from impaired development of these auditory magna cells. So if you put all this together, you can actually account for, and we're talking about all children's reading now, not just dyslexics, you can account for something like two-thirds of all the differences in children's reading just by knowing their non-verbal IQ, their sensitivity to visual motion. I haven't really talked about this, but it's a way of getting at the sensitivity of the visual magnocellular system their sensitivity to the auditory frequency modulation and sensitivity to auditory amplitude modulation. If you know all those things, you can account for two-thirds of children's uh, reading differences. And I find that very encouraging because what it means is that, well, first of all, we know we can improve these things by training, once we know what we're looking for and what we're trying to train. And secondly, it means that the things that we all worry about, like how many 
how much teaching they've had, how good the teaching is, how many books there are in mum's house, how much mother reads the child, is relatively less important. I'm not saying it's unimportant, but it's relatively less important. The things that are more important are things that you can do something about. That's what's exciting. Now I'm going to talk to you about briefly about another aspect. This is the motor magnocellular system, um, which is to do with the part of the brain called the cerebellum. The cerebellum sits at the back of the brain under here, and it is, it's what's, what we call the brain's autopilot. It's what makes you skilled at anything. All those wonderful Olympiads who got gold medals, their cerebella have been tuned to perfection. Um, one simple way of testing the function of the cerebellum is actually to test people's balance because the cerebellum plays a very important part in controlling your balance. So when I stand on one leg, I can do so, even though I'm slightly nervous, um, and so can anybody else. However, you can measure how good your balance is by putting a, a, a sensor on the top of somebody's head and measuring how much it moves when you're standing on one leg. And this is simply standing on one leg, eyes open. And what you can see is that the, the good reader, the head moved around not very much, whereas the poor reader moved around a great deal. Now this isn't a, a absolutely selective for the cerebellum, but it's a pretty good sign that there's something wrong with the cerebellum. And we know that the cerebellum is the part of the brain that's important, as I say, for acquiring skilled movements. And what it needs part, above all is information about the timing of things like muscle contractions, about um, the lengthening of the muscles and puffs of wind or whatever that might make you lose your balance. And what we find, uh, what we know, is that there is um, decreased activation, decreased size, indeed, of the cerebellum in dyslexics. So this is a, 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 some work by Nicholson and Fawcett, which they showed that um, during a, a simple visual tracking task, where you have to track uh, something on a screen with a joystick, um, you find that there's decreased activation in the cerebellum of dyslexics, as you see here. And that, to cut a long story short, is probably because the cerebellum not only receives inadequate information from the magnocellular systems, the auditory, visual, and actually proprioceptive ones, muscle sense um, magnocellular systems, but also because the cerebellum itself is part of the generalized magnocellular system that I'm going to talk about in a moment. And this is just saying all that I've said all, uh, already, so I will not... Uh, go on with that. But what I want to emphasize is that there's a whole number of different magnocellular systems that are all impaired to a greater or lesser degree in different dyslexics in dyslexia. Um, so let's now talk a bit more about magnocellular neurons. Magnocellular neurons, they're a system of large neurons specialized for temporal processing. They're large, and that gives them fast conduction, fast responses. What's important from what I'm going to say from now on is that they all derive from the same neural lineage. They actually express the same surface antigen, which is the way in which they recognize each other during development. They're found throughout the whole brain, not just the visual and auditory system, but many other parts of the brain. They turn out to be very vulnerable. They're the most vulnerable set of neurons, and that's why they are um, impaired in all these conditions, fetal alcohol syndrome, developmental dyslexia, dyspraxia, dysphasia, ADHD, etc. Um, the high dynamic sensitivity of magnocells is supported by membrane specializations. And a particular one I'm going to talk about is um, the flexibility of the membranes to allow channels to open and close fast. And that is supported by a particular set of, of essential fatty acids found in fish oils called omega-3s. So what causes this magnocellular impairment? I'm just going to talk about um, uh, our studies in which we've taken 400 families from around Oxford and another 100 around Boulder in the USA and now 
within the European Union and another set of families. What we do is we analyse the father, father and mother and dyslexic and if possible a normal reading ch child as well and we look for what are called linkages. And this is to show you two linkages that we've discovered and I'm going to talk about this one first which is on chromosome 6, uh, the short arm of chromosome 6 which is actually the area which is responsible for the control of your immune system, the so-called major histocompatibility complex. Now, now, this gene is called KIA0319, and it's particularly strongly expressed in this visual magnocellular pathway. So all those yellow blobs there are parts of the visual magnocellular pathway, the so-called dorsal pathway in the visual system. And the reason it's been very exciting to us in the last five or so years is it's been shown, not by me I'm afraid, but I've been part of the consortium, um, that it is important for the development of the brain. You remember right at the beginning I said these cells fetch up in the wrong places and this is why. This particular gene, which is slightly underexpressed in dyslexics, not a major problem in dyslexics, what you see here is in normal brains, in the first division of the nerve cells, which is taking place around the ventricles, that is the, uh, the um, cavities in the middle of the brain, um, the first division produces this thing which is called a radial glial cell. And then thereafter, the cells divide and they're all nerve cells. And what they do is they climb up the radial glial to form the six layers of the cerebral cortex, which you could vaguely see there. However, if you knock out this gene, which you can now do locally, I won't explain it, I won't bother you with how, then those cells don't move at all. So that gene is now not expressed. I'm not saying that that's what happens in dyslexia, but if you knock it out altogether, the cells simply hang around here. They don't know that they've got to go up there. And actually that's not com uh, compatible with a very long life, I'm afraid, but that's much more serious than a dyslexia. So as I say, and there are two other genes that have been associated with this problem as well. Um, and so as I say, these dyslexia genes, this particular set of dyslexia genes, three so far discovered, is important for the way in which the cells are set up during early in development and link with each other. It also explains why there's a whole uh, high incidence of immune anomalies in dyslexics. Many of you will know that dyslexics have higher incidence of allergies, eczema, asthma, uveitis, actually migraine is, has a, has a um, immunological aspect as well. Uh, they have much higher incidence of these than do the rest of the population. And that's because the same genes that are controlling the development in, uh, or, or, uh, in um, uh, dyslexics are also controlling the immune system or some of the same genes. So we now know that dyslexia uh, development of magnocellular neurons is in fact regulated by the MHC cell recognition immune system of which the gene I've just talked to you about, KIO319, is a part. There's linkage of poor reading to this set of genes as I say. There's a, a particular brand of mouse which has been bred to, ex to produce autoimmunity and it also produces the ectopia similar to the ones I've told you about. And there's a lot of evidence for anti-magno antibodies, no I said a lot of evidence, we have produced some evidence that there are anti-magno antibodies in the serum of mothers with dyslexic children. Again I haven't got time to go into it but what it says is that there's a tie up between dyslexia and the um, the um, uh, deficits in the um, setup of the brain early in development and the deficits in the immune system. Now I want to talk to you about another gene that we've discovered on chromosome 18 um, and that probably is a gene called melanocortin receptor 5. The reason I'm interested in is this. This is me waiting for my cod liver oil in 1949 and those of very few of you here are of that age but those of us of our age um, up to the early 50s we all had cod liver oil every morning 
And this was because this guy, who happens to be my senior colleague at Magdalen, uh, Hugh Sinclair, persuaded the World War II government to give all pregnant mums and their children up to the age of, I think it was eight, cod liver oil. Why did he do this? Because he knew that 20% uh, of the brain consists of a particular fish oil called docus hexanoic acid. And it's essential for flexible membranes that our magnocells require. And a modern diet is extremely deficient. We adapted to a fish hunting gathering economy during our evolutionary development. And this exact is probably what allowed us to produce a hundred times the number of connections of our closest um, relatives, the chimpanzees. Uh, and, and in fact, it also explains why we so crave saturated fat and sugar and salt, which are the three very dangerous things I'll talk to you about now. Because modern diet is appalling. These are Americans, I'm glad to say, not the Brits, but there are Brits getting towards that sort of size. Um, and we all eat too much of the, what I call the dangerous S's, sugar, saturated fat, salt, and omega-6's, we don't eat enough of the omega-3s or the vitamins and minerals that come from things like vegetables and fruit. And this is the terminal effect of too many uh, of these S's. Omega-3s enable this fast neuronal function and the, it makes the magnocell neurons particularly vulnerable to lack of these fish pearls. Um, and as I say, it's a, because it's important for them to be a, able to open and close their membranes fast. And there's a whole slew of other things which relate um, fish to the importance of the heart, uh, to the heart and brain and relate me to my brother. Um, so, most cognition, and I'm not really just talking about reading, I'm talking about all kinds of communication, it depends on being able to accurately sequence things, speech sounds, letters, facial expressions for social communication. And this requires this visual and auditory attention I've been talking about. This requires magnocellular neurons. Impaired development of those neurons leads to deficits in these conditions. Um, and they need these fish oils, in not just docosahexanoic acid, but actually echosapentanoic acid as well, but we don't eat enough of them. So what I'm now going to show you is what you can do is certain kinds of groups of people if we give supplements of DHA and EPA. Oh, I'll, I think I'll leave this for questions if anybody's interested. Um, as I have said, many children with neurodevelopmental problems actually have signs of omega-3 deficiency. They have low blood and brain omega-3 fatty acids. They have elevated levels of an enzyme that actually removes the omega-3s from the membranes. Um, and what I'm going to show you now is how we can actually improve magnocellular function by giving omega-3 supplements. And as you know, the gold standard for proving this is what's called a randomized controlled trial. Uh, my colleague, Alex Ritson, um, showed in a, st a study in Durham, in which he randomly allocated either omega-3s or uh, a placebo that looked exact and tasted exactly the same to children um, with, with dyspraxia, actually. She showed that their, their reading was also very bad. Um, she showed that you could improve their reading by nine months and three months compared with the placebo, which was three months and three months. Um, and she also showed that you could improve the, their attention. These, these children also had elements of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And you can see that um, the, the red columns show improvements in various elements of measurements of attention. Um, but we went on further to show that you can actually improve criminal behavior because one of the things that has became clear to me by watching children whom we'd given omega-3s was that you could actually improve their mood, their ability to focus attention and reduce their aggressiveness. It was notable that there was less fights in the, program, uh, in the playground in that Durham study, for instance. 
And so with Bernard Gesch, we went ahead and did a study in which we gave young offenders in Aylesbury Young Offenders Prison uh, uh, omega-3s and actually minerals and vitamins as well, and we showed that we could reduce their rate of offending by a third, which is a larger reduction in offence rate than has ever been claimed for any kind of um, sort of social or psychological treatment. So what are my take-home messages? Suspect dyslexia in any child much better at talking than reading, uh, who makes visual or sound sequencing errors and unwilling to read out loud. Um, be aware that reading can often be improved by blue or yellow filters, so there's no harm in trying them. Um, and that blue often helps sleep, casts, uh, headaches, and I didn't mention car sickness, but that's another thing which follows from uh, the improvement in balance, actually. Um, auditory function can often improve with musical training. I didn't have a chance to talk about that, but that's the way in which you can improve auditory function. Um, and as I said, magnocellular function can often be improved by eating oily flish, fish or supplement capsules. So I hope I've con uh, convinced you that the fundamental auditory, visual and motor temporal sequencing requirements for speech, uh, reading and attention are, uh, are remediated by this magnocellular system. Um, the visual magnocellular system gives rise to the orthographic problems. Uh, the auditory magnocellular weakness gives rise to the phonological problems. Um, magnosystems also involve the cerebellum, as I explained to you, so that dyslexics tend to be incoordinated and clumsy, and I didn't really emphasize that. Um, and I've shown you how weak magnocellular function may result from the genetic vulnerability, from antibody attack, and from fish oil deficiency. And I find all this very exciting because all these things can be remedied. It's not, uh, don't think that because it has a genetic basis, you can't do anything about it. Remember, 50% of the, of the um, um, uh, differences in reading are not genetic. And those are the things we can do something about. But I also want to, I always like to end on making the case that actually dyslexia wouldn't be so common, and it is common, those genes wouldn't have hung around unless they had some advantages. And in fact, uh, if we got rid of all the genes that um, uh, give rise to dyslexic weaknesses, we'd also get rid of people like Rodin, Winston Churchill, Leonardo was probably dyslexic, him, uh, <laughs> uh, Stuart, the, uh, Jackie Stewart, the racing car driver, and uh, Oprah Winfrey. So there's, there's a lot of talented people with dyslexia. On that note, I'll stop. <laughs>